The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, call it the sure shot redemption as England end goals drought v Germany. Now, with the World Cup looming, we check on the big European favourites. Germany, Spain, France and Van Hals Netherlands. Who'll star, who'll stutter when we get to Qatar? Who'll have the defensive consistency of butter? Plus, why it's probably going to be Argentina and Brazil's year anyway in this Totally Football Show. Tuesday, 27th of September. Hey, listener. I'm excited. You're excited. The World Cup's around the corner. And right now, we've got Julian Laurence, Alvaro Romeo, and Raphael Honigstein here with us. Good morning, boys. Hello, guys. Hello. Oh, we've also got Mikhail Jongsma a little bit later on. His views on Van Gaal's triumphant Netherlands. They're about the only big Euro side not struggling, of course. Right now, checks notes, Spain <laughs> lost at home to Switzerland. Germany got beaten by Hungary, only drew with England. France got done by Denmark. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. One or two issues. One or two issues we'll be talking about today then. Uh, of course, the big news amongst all of this is that Italy have conquered their place in the final four. Come November, they'll be uh, getting their preparations locked in with some key friendlies while the, the other disappointed nations have... I think a sponsored kick around in a desert somewhere. A little bit demeaning, but uh, but anyway, yeah. Who's excited anyway? 54 days, Jules, till the World Cup. Yeah, I'm excited, really excited, uh, because I think it's going to be a very open World Cup. I mean, we can debate the whole Qatar issue and everything, which which we should, to be fair. And part of me doesn't really want to go there, but part of me wants to go there and see what happens when a million people are in the same town. Mm. All together, uh, mm. with no alcohol available for the ones who drink, not me, but the other ones. So it would be it would be quite fascinating to watch. And I think it's an open competition. I think there's a lot of teams that can win it. There could be a lot of surprises as well. Uh, so it should be good. Jules predicts some surprises and a lot of teams that could win it. Would you? Are you going to stick your <laughs> neck out as well, Alvaro? Expertise. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think that this World Cup is going to be really interesting and. Uh, I think that in the last Totally Football show we did last season, I mentioned already that I wanted to see how Brazil was going to compare to the European sides. Mm. You remember when you asked, uh, what are you looking forward to in 2022, in the second half of the year? That's it, really, uh, because I think that the European football is very leveled right now. In fact, if you follow the sequence of uh, how Euro 2020 ended, you will see that there were four draws. Uh, Switzerland, Spain, a draw, Spain against um, Croatia, I think that it was another draw, I believe it was like that, then Italy, Spain was a draw, England, Italy in the final was another draw, so there was a whole sequence of draw leading to Italy winning the, the Euro, and then Italy didn't qualify for the World Cup, I think that every team is very leveled in Europe, uh, contrast with South America, Argentina and Brazil are better than ever, they qualified so easily for the World Cup, that I want to see how these two continents compare, because I think that Argentina and Brazil this time they have a chance of winning it get more thoughts on Argentina and Brazil later on. Rafa, a lot of the next 54 days are going to be spent, I think, having conversations about who's going to win the World Cup. Hopefully we're going to get a little bit of insight today, but what's your feeling? Well, we haven't seen much of them, either of them playing European sides. Uh, Brazil, I don't think have played a European side in a few months, and of course Argentina had the Italy game in Estonia recently, but still maybe we don't see their flaws as regularly because of that lack of exposure. I think there's a danger with the national teams which become quickly obsession with football fans, local fo- domestic football fans, that you only home in on your, your problems and kind of forget that everyone else has, has issues as well. And having watched France on Thursday, I thought they're so shambolic yet so brilliant at the same time. It would still be, I think, some achievement if they weren't to win the World Cup considering all the amount of players at their disposal. Of course, we know that Deschamps somehow has to keep the, the whole squad happy, which is going to be the biggest issue. But once, the, once they're playing, I just don't see any team who's remotely in the same conversation when it comes to just the amount of fantastic players that they have. So mm. I think if France don't win it, it's a total disgrace. But no wow. pressure, Jules. Oh, no pressure. <laughs> wow. 
All right. Well, beaten 2-0 by Denmark in their most recent Nations League game. We'll be talking France and Germany and Spain and Argentina and Brazil and Netherlands. It's an international weekend. Should we have a couple of moments of the weekend all the same? Alvaro, have you got one? Yes, of course. Uh, it will be Croatia qualifying for the Nations League playoffs uh, because uh, I think we take as granted what they do, uh, but they are a three and a half million inhabitant country. And sometimes we talk about the Uruguayan miracle because Uruguay has about the same inhabitants. But Croatia is also punching above their weight for many years now. And they reached the World Cup final in 2018. Uh, they are in the Nations League final right now. And in a way, they have become the most stable side in Europe right now. They are not the best, in my opinion, because Rafael said, for example, about France, and it's true when they play well, they can destroy you in a matter of seconds. But uh, Croatia is very stable. Basically, they are not very uh, permeable to ups and downs. And I think that this makes them like a very... Uh, a very good side, actually. A side that has to sweat for every achievement, for every goal, for every clean sheet. In fact, uh, they finished the World Cup knockouts uh, with a negative goal difference. Uh, I think that in Euro 2020, they also had an overall negative goal difference. That tells you that this is a side that has to fight uh, and do their best every time, but they do it. Mm. They got four wins in a row to be in the Nations League Final Four, and for me, they deserve the moment of the week because, you know, uh, they won away in Austria, and that was like the confirmation that, you know, they are one of the uh, very competent sides in Europe. Mm. There you go. World Cup group awaiting them with Morocco, Canada and Belgium. Rafa? A uh, moment of the week was perhaps influenced by me being there in person, but Kylian Mbappe's goal against Austria was wow. de la part de Savitzer ballon de Giroud avec Mbappé qui crochette Mbappé qui continue à accélérer qui est accroché qui a toujours le ballon la frappe de Mbappé la frappe de Mbappé et le but et l'ouverture du score I mean Thursday is still the weekend week isn't it that yeah weekend. paint a picture for us Rafa and well he takes the ball in midfield and just slaloms past four players and then smashes it past the keeper and absolutely no chance all at an incredible uh, pace and it was one of those moments where you realize which from time to time you sort of used to get with Messi that you shouldn't get used to that brilliance it's almost sort of now kind of you see it in PSG on a weekly basis and you kind of shrug it off but it is just a, a beauty to behold to see how good this guy is um, should have scored more goals, was a bit wasteful, but wow. Um, I think Kylian Mbappe not scoring in a PSG shirt also has the added benefit, I think, for neutrals being slightly more in awe of it because it's hard to warm anything that happens in a PSG shirt. Whereas uh, with France, I think we can be a little bit more objective. And uh, he just underlined, I think, his phenomenal phenomenal position in in the conversation of uh, of the greats coming the players bouncing away from Mbappe that was astonishing Rafael I remember some players that they just couldn't stop him and they were bouncing away from him as if he was some uh, video game uh, evil character I don't know with some electricity <laughs> around him it was astonishing really Jules because Rafa picked um, Kilian, I'm going to go for Faroe Island, who beat Turkey nice. on Sunday, which yeah. you know doesn't happen often. To be fair, Niche. apart from Luxembourg, they they you know they even in the the League C of the Nations League, uh, they can beat Lithuania and Luxembourg. But to go and beat Turkey, a Turkey side that was already qualified, of course, but still, it's pretty remarkable. Luxembourg having some really good result and drawing with Turkey a few days before, but yeah, that big win for Faroe Island, surely one of the the greatest. All How right. do you say niche in French? Uh, niche, maybe, I think. <laughs> Just along the coast from Cange, yeah? Yes, shine. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, all that was impressive, but does it compare to England's stirring comeback and then a little bit of a slip at the end, but 3-3 with Germany? Let's talk about that next. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Right, Rafa, you were at Wembley Monday night for England 3, Germany 3. Remarkable game that sprang to life in the second half. First of all, from a German perspective, given the kind of issues that the side had or, or supporters might have been concerned about going into the game, what was the reaction to this? 
In the words of Thomas Müller, it leaves a lot of room for interpretation. Um, I think most of the German players were not quite sure what to make of it, along with, with the public. There were some really good bits. Uh, Kai Havertz turned up and scored the kind of goals that Germany need because they don't have a an orthodox number nine. So him playing a false nine or a bit more of a ten later on when Timo Werner came on is is, is huge for Germany. And they showed good character, you know, to come back at the end after going 3-2 down within 11 minutes. But defensively, it was a bit shambolic. And also, for most part of the first hour, when they had a lot of the ball, but absolutely no cutting edge, it was sort of fairly reminiscent of one of those Bayern games where they play against deep blocks with very unadventurous opposition who are very good on the counter-attack, sort of Union Berlin uh, style. Um, and just go nowhere and just don't have any width, don't have any ideas. And it just served to underline, I think, the problems more than the solutions. And it was remarkable afterwards to hear Thomas Müller refer to Real Madrid as a possible example that Germany should uh, look out for because they always keep their head up. They find ways of winning. But the insinuation was sort of that you can win playing badly or not being in the game. And I don't think that can be Germany's aspiration. I don't think they have the players for it either to be so passive. Uh, and of course, there's no second legs in the World Cup, which I think is also a problem for the Real Madrid model. Hmm. Um, so I think um, everyone's hopeful that somehow things will come together. Hmm. But the fact that there is no preparation... And the fact that Bayern are struggling, and of course, a lot of these Germany players are Bayern players, struggling with the same issues that this Germany team are struggling, or maybe vice versa, makes you wonder if there will be enough time to find that rhythm, that precision that that kind of game really needs desperately. Mm. All right. I mean, it had started well for Germany going 2-0 up after the, the previous match, which had ended in a first defeat for Hansi Flick as Germany manager, when... Uh, the Mannschaft were beaten 1-0 by Hungary, who hadn't beaten Germany in a competitive fixture since 1954. That must have caused a bit of a shock. Yeah, 1954, the group stage, of course. Um, die, die Nationalmannschaft, James, um, I have to say, right. because die Mannschaft now is officially no longer oh. uh, Germany's um, nickname. It's mm. been abolished after bad public reaction. Yeah, I mean, Hungary was so bad, not just the result, the performance that all the goodwill, all the momentum that Flick had built up in this run of not being beaten, although there were quite a few draws, especially in the Nations League, had kind of dis dissipated. And we went into the Wembley game, and I'm sure we, we sort of go out of the Wembley game in more or less the same state, with people really being worried that they're no longer quite sure whether this Germany under Flick is actually going to be competitive. Uh, which is a real change from where the conversation was uh, back in June or even before that, where, where Germany looked a lot refreshed post um, Jogi Löw, of course, and Flick was sort of making his mark on the team. And uh, now it looks laboured and slow. Some of the problems that we've seen under Löw have come back. And as I said, some of the problems that we've seen for Bayern under Nagelsmann are evident as well, um, because they're also lacking a centre forward, they're also lacking uh, fullbacks that provide uh, sustainable, sort of regular quality from the sides. And yeah, I think people are hopeful um, in light of Germany's tournament history, 2018 excluded, that somehow they will find a way to navigate those problems. But you don't have the same confidence that. I think was in evidence six, seven months ago. Mm. 23rd of November, your World Cup begins against Japan. The other two teams in the group, Costa Rica and Spain. Crikey. What was the issue with the public reaction to Manshaft then? Was it, it wasn't our comment about Flick and the Manshaft, was it? No, no, that didn't make, that didn't make the, um, that didn't travel. But no, what, what, what happened is, I don't know, I don't want to bore you too much, but after 2014, Angela Merkel had been talking to lots of heads of state and they would all be nice about the Mannschaft, thinking like you, James, that 
Germany are called the Mannschaft, which they're not and never have been. Right. And that word got to Oliver Bierhoff and he suddenly felt, wow, the Mannschaft is actually a great sort of brand name for the team. We haven't thought about that. So they actually rebranded the team, the Mannschaft. Okay. But because it's such an artificial sort of construct and no one's mm. ever referred to them that way, it's been sort of this, this low-level annoyance and people saying, oh, this is just another sign of sort of Germany trying to do something which they're not and this doesn't really, it's not authentic. Um, so they quietly now, after eight years, um, di- ditched it. No <laughs> and, way. Uh, so teams uh, at the World Cup are not going to be playing with the Mannschaft anymore? No, no, they were playing Die Nationalmannschaft, as it right. always has been and always should be. Okay, all right. Crikey. Hey, from an England perspective, it had been a really, 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 really tough Nations League, but it all kind of burst into life with 19 minutes to go. Did you, do, you, do you feel more positive about England's prospects in the World Cup after that performance? It's the same. You can, you, can look at, you can look at the team and think they did some stuff really well. I think in terms of game plan, they looked closer to executing what they wanted to do than Germany because they were clearly playing on the counter-attack. They had chances in the first half. They were the better team in that respect. They should have taken those chances. I'm not just talking about Sterling's shot, but also Phil Foden inexplicably not being able to execute the final ball to Harry Kane. And then you're looking at 2-0 and it's a tactical master plan really from Gareth Southgate. But of course, they strangely enough played best when they ditched all that and went gung-ho, leaving huge spaces and, and suddenly going for it. I'm not sure it really leaves us any wiser. The one thing I would say is the last time there was this public clamor for a a manager to change his pragmatic approach and go a lot more attack and use all these players that he has. That's when Roy Hodgson's England crashed out of the World Cup within the space of six days, having really gone completely against his nature and playing all these attacking players. So I don't think he can really expect, nor perhaps should you, for mm. Gary Southgate to to change at this point. But it does keep you wondering if that's really the best way to get the most out of the players that he has. Mm. I think that uh, there are a few things that uh, have consolidated in this uh, break. Uh, number one, I think that he has found uh, the eight or nine players that he wants to use. I'm talking about Gareth Southgate. I mean, his uh, fullback on the right is going to be Rhys James. It's almost confirmed, I think, for the World Cup. Rice and Bellingham, um, with the absence of uh, Calvin Phillips, they are going to be the holding midfielders, the creative midfielders, probably, in the case of Jude Bellingham as well. And up front, uh, we have seen Sterling, Kane and Foden playing together for two games in a row. Of course, I think that um, the second game against Germany, Gareth Southwood was always going to pick a very strong side because you cannot afford losing uh, against the Germans. After having lost against Italy, I think that England needed like a booster of confidence. And I think that this game against them has lifted them a little bit after what happened against Italy. But yes, I think that we know more or less which eight players or nine players are going to be in the lineup in the first game of the World Cup. I think that we know it now after seeing the lineups of uh, Gareth Southgate in this window. It's quite interesting. A lot of German colleagues of mine um, asked me, how much danger is, is Gareth Southgate really in? Will they fire him if, if he loses the game? And there seemed to be this perception that he's really on, on, on borrowed time or this is the beginning of the end. But at the same time, a lot of them said something that I would agree with, that really the, 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 the day to fire him would not be now, it's not now, um, but could have been after the Euros. Um, I know the Euros were seen as a huge success because of England uh, making the final but I think that the way they threw effectively away that game and the opportunity to to win a first trophy since '66 really was a lot. A lot of it was down to the way he managed managed that game and managed his team. And I think that could have been better reasons for his dismissal. Of course, it was never going to happen. But I think we see perhaps outside England, we see I think the flaws of his management a bit clearer, or perhaps we've seen him for a longer time. But that is not to say that his defensive first regime will not be successful because it basically is an easy way of playing. It's much mm. harder to 
to try what Germany are doing, which is to be really dominant on the ball, but at the same time be resistant to the counter-attacks. That is the hardest way of playing. You say um, that, Russell, sit- but playing defensive football with Harry Maguire in is pretty t- tricky <laughs> tactical <laughs> it's a fair, juggling act. It's a very fair point. It's a very mm. fair point, James. All I think right. Harry Maguire is probably... if There weren't many big winners, I think, on the night, but there might have been one or two big losers, and I don't think it's, it's unfair to say that Harry Maguire's position now must be in real doubt after the nightmare yeah. he had. Might be kinder to give him... A rest. Just lastly on the game, what was the atmosphere like, you know, given the usual context of England, Germany and brass bands doing theme tunes? And I was very disappointed. I mean, I went through an entire 10 minute ride on the Metropolitan Line without any German bombers being shot down. So standards are slipping. Mm. Um, no, it was very subdued. It felt like a friendly. Something stirred in the second half because of the goals going in and England coming back and there was this Bit of momentum and people were very happy but the game kind of just drifted by along with the atmosphere it wasn't it wasn't a classic occasion in that sense and okay. I suggested to Müller my theory that part of the reason why we get these weird results in the Nations League with so many big teams struggling is because ultimately they don't t- quite take it as seriously mm-hmm. as a real competitive game and maybe those few percentage points missing then make for a game with lots of errors and stuff, but he didn't seem to buy it. He just he felt that the the lesser sides in inverted commas actually all pretty good and make it difficult for for the bigger sides to shine and bring their quality to bear. But I'm sticking with that theory anyway, even mm. if Miller doesn't agree. Okay, well, he he might not publicly be able to agree. Hmm. Jules, did you watch that or did you watch the real game on Monday night? Hungary, Italy. Italy's two 0 win over the Magos. I did you? Screens, but I watched a bit more of the England journey because I was more what? interested in that one. Yeah, wow. I know. But Italy. I liked what Italy did. Yeah. Post fascist two. Fascist yeah. fascist nil. <laughs> yeah. Well, on the field anyway, a great success uh, for a side who came into this international window, the Azurian danger of relegation from that group. They'd just been beaten five two by Germany back in the summer. But they did England and then 2-0 against Hungary, so back-to-back clean sheets. Raspadori scored again. Federico De Marco with the other goal. And then, I don't know if you saw Donnarumma's saves in the second half, but he was yeah. he was extraordinary. And through they go to the to the uh, final four next June, wherever that's going to be, because they, they haven't decided that yet, the Nations And with League. a lot of players missing as well. So very much yeah. a, a B Italy team, maybe even a C Italy team. You know, you think that maybe... Another 10 players with Donnarumma, maybe not 10, but maybe nine. And then you've got the strongest team possible. So for them to go and get those results, I mean, England, I thought England were very average in that game uh, anyway. But still, you had to go and win it. And Raspadori's goal, the, the ball from Bonucci, Ooh. the first touch and then the finish, helped by how bad Walker and Dyer defended. But still, it's a great goal. And then that momentum you carry here, it would have been a shame really to not be hungry then and, and have that disappointment. But wow. no, well, well done. Well, the Italian press, full of joy at this result. Let's see, according to the sport, what a regret, they say. This makes the World Cup even tougher now. Gazetta says, this is bitter. Mancini commenting, getting from here till December is going to be really, really tough. Crikey. Well, there you go. 34th win as manager of the Azuri for Roberto Mancini. Uh, and that's nice. And we'll see how they get on. Next June, wherever they play the uh, final four, which will be against Croatia, Netherlands, and either Spain or Portugal, depending on what happens when those two teams face off on Tuesday night. We will talk about them shortly. Listener, let me ask you, though, who are the reigning Nations League champions? Hmm? Yeah, I thought not. We'll be talking about them next. This is Ian Irving, host of Talk of the Devils, the podcast dedicated to Manchester United from The Athletic. After what's felt like an eternity without Premier League football, it's back with a bang for United this weekend with the Manchester derby taking top billing. Join myself, Andy Mitten, Laurie Whitwell and Carl Anker every week, but particularly this week as we build up to what's probably the toughest test yet of United's newfound optimism under Eric Ten Hag. Just search for Talk of the Devils wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to click follow and subscribe for access to all our episodes. 
This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. It's France, isn't it, Jules? Woohoo! Yeah, reigning world champions and reigning Nations League champions. That's what we do. Right. Okay. Everyone's sensible tip for the World Cup, I think. And yet they've been doing a bit of an England through the Nations League games, which, as Rafa says, have, have a little bit of an asterisk next to them. But what's the mood like in France, particularly after Sunday's 2-0 defeat by Denmark? Yeah, that was bad. Sunday, as, as good a time as Thursday was against Austria, and Austria and Denmark obviously not at the same level. But the positive feeling came back after that win against Austria because there was a lot of things that were pleasing in that game. Some of the debutants that we saw, Bajashil, Fofana, were good. Giroud scored again, becoming the oldest player ever to score for France. And Mbappe, as Rafa mentioned before, with a lovely goal. And then, pretty much straight after, the sort of, the sort of malaise came back when Mbappe said, oh yeah, I've got more freedom here. It's not like in Paris. In Paris, I'm asked to play as a pivot. And here, I've got Giroud and I can do what I want. And I... So... Instead of talking about the positives of the Australia win and, and how you can build on it in a way to try to get a good result against Denmark because it was going to be likely that we would not be relegated, then we, we go back to Mbappe and more controversy and more debate on his use for PSG uh, with the national team, his status, blah, 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 all of that, which in a way was not a good omen then for the Denmark game because it really felt like before the Denmark game, we stopped talking about football in a way. And then I think Deschamps messed it up completely with his starting eleven. That was um, Some of the choices were quite crazy. I don't think that going with a back three of Saliba, who's 21, on his what, third cap or fourth cap, Upamecano, who's 23, on his seventh or eighth, and then Badiashil on only second, 21 years old, for a back three in that kind of environment against a team like Denmark, who's a really good team and mm. we're always going to put you under pressure, was a terrible idea. If you had Kamavinga, who had a shocker and came off at halftime, then you understand why the first half, especially and the five minutes where Denmark scored the two goals, but maybe between the 15th and the 45th minute, they were so good. We could not get out of our half. We could not do two passes together. It was a really shambolic second half of the first half. And... And I blame Deschamps for that. So you almost go back to, okay, we can see clearly all the flaws that this team has, even with all the injuries, more than the positives. Mm, a lot of injuries for France. How concerned are you? Because you've got Denmark in the group as well at the World Cup, along with uh, Australia and Tunisia. Yeah. How good were they the other night, beyond Deschamps' flaws? And Christian Eriksen in particular. Oh, Eriksen was amazing. I don't know if he can keep up that form through the whole season uh, and and up to the World Cup and then during the World Cup play like that. I think at some point in France were very naive in how they let him play. Instead, I thought, well, I think it was pretty clear. I thought before the game that either Chouamini or Kamavinga would have to do a job on Eriksen. And instead, they just let him free to do whatever he wanted, play deep where he's so good and find the long balls and which was crazy, I think. And even for Deschamps not to do something through the first half, but it, it changed a little bit in the second half when Fofana came on and, and did a better job on Ericsson than Kamavinga or Chouameni in the first half. But yeah, they, they're good. They've got the older generation. They've got the younger generation. Uh, we saw uh, Holyun, the, the Atalanta striker, coming on. We saw Lindstrom, the Frankfurt winger, coming on and bringing a lot halfway through the second half. So they, they will have a really, really good squad with everything in it. And I think they can have a really good World Cup. I think France and Denmark will come out of that group. But after that, mm. I wouldn't want to face Denmark. And for France, I think they're going to raise their game for the World Cup. I think Deschamps will. I think the, the big names will be back. They're really praying for Pogba and N'Golo Kante to be back because as good as Chouamini has been with Real Madrid, you see that it's, this is not the same level yet. Same with Fofana. You've got Rabiot or or Genduzi, or, or as we saw Kamavinga, which is not good enough. So they really need Pogba and Conte back. But yeah, I mm. think I don't think we should be too worried. That's only the message that Deschamps had after the game. Okay, I mean the group looks okay. Having said that, if you finish second, you'll probably be facing Argentina. Yeah. In the last sixteen, which would be a bit of a concern. Overall, though, uh, Joey Durso was mentioning on uh, totally yesterday that the stat that the last six World Cups France have done brilliantly in 
three of them and not brilliantly with and in fact total meltdowns in, in, in two of the other three l'équipe this morning with terrain glissant with uh Deschamps falling over on thin ice, I, I guess, yeah. was the, the kind of illustration. Because there's a lot of a lot of people saying that all the ingredients of another meltdown are, are there this time. What do you think? There's equally all the ingredients for a brilliant performance, as Rafa was saying. What's your money on? Yeah, I think we do a meltdown, uh, for sure. Uh, this is what we do. Although it feels like the meltdown is, is kind of happening now, which maybe ah. is good because, obviously... Mm. Uh, you've got the uh, the Pogba stories, the witchcraft, everything. You've got all the injuries. How much do you think Pogba and the witchcraft and blackmail and, and extortion uh, and kidnapping business and equally Mbappe's uh, image rights battle with the, with the Federation, yeah. how much do you think all that stuff influences is, is going to have an effect on the team? I don't know. I think it's, it's really fascinating. It really is. Um, again, in French football, we're used to it, but this is another level. I mean, the, the Mbappé image right, I think, was sorted out at the right, like just about at the right time in this international break, and it's not completely sorted. Uh, but I think I would expect a lot of national team players to follow uh, because this is something that should have been addressed a long time ago for everybody, not just France. But it showed, in a way, the, the leadership that Kylian now has, which might not suit everyone or might not make everyone happy uh, within the national team, outside of the national team. I don't know. I like it, but I could understand why some people, the debate in France was like, is it really his role to do that at 23, not even being captain, vice-captain, etc., etc.? The pop by witchcraft is is crazy. I think the biggest worry that Deschamps has is not so much Paul's fitness because he believes that he's going to come back on time and be ready and fit to go, it's more psychologically, what kind of Pogba are you going to see again? Uh, because all of this surely at some point will take his toll on him. Mm. I mean, his own brother is in jail and still publishes videos on social media to tell the whole world that his brother spent 4 million euros on a witch doctor called Ibrahim the Grande that would at some point make Manchester United beat PhD in the Champions League, France win the World Cup, and his brother not being injured. So it's just crazy stuff. You've got the Federation in complete turmoil because the, the head of the FN, Noel Legayet, is accused of all sorts. Um, you know, you've got the, what has happening in women's football at PSG, but, but even o- overall that with the women's national team, it's, it's just crazy. So maybe this is, this is the early meltdown that won't happen at the World Cup or maybe mm. it's going to get worse at the World Cup. I don't know. I think that Deschamps is certainly the right manager to avoid the turmoil. If you look right. at history, he's the one really that avoided all the turmoil. So I think, I think he will lead well, but I wouldn't be surprised if we also not make out the group stages. Okay. I mean, sometimes that kind of external ad- adversity can bond a team together in the example of Italy 2006 springs to yeah. mind, but uh, yeah, I guess yeah, it could equally This is more go. internal adversity, though. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, so. between them. <laughs> I guess so. All right, then. Hmm. Rafa, what do you think? Is it all going to come together? Is it going to be boom or bust for France? I still think that they, they're too good to completely implode. Without mm. the ball, I think they're huge issues, but they will get the ball at some stage and they will probably do something pretty special with it. So I still think France, good position to go all the way. And also, the legends say the individual agendas of the player, if, if you like. I mean, a guy like Kylian Mbappé wants to make, wants to, wants to perform perfectly in this World Cup. I mean, and many more players, they want to do very well. I mean, I don't see a meltdown like in 2010, that's for sure. And I remember that in the Nations League final against Spain, I think that Spain played well that game but we don't have the individual talent to, to win a game and France has it and this in the World Cup counts a lot especially because how many weeks are the teams going to have to get ready for the World Cup is it 10 days maximum so no, not even not even not even mm. so I think that uh, whoever is sharp individually and France has many players even Karim Benzema is going to be fine whoever is sharp individually um, has a chance to, to shine and I think that the individuals in this World Cup they are going to perhaps uh, be more important than the collective ultimately mm. Some teams will get sort of 11-12 days to get ready but others much much less mm. Alright, it's an atypical year Next up, Spain Spain 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Y no, ganan el primer palo, hombre, fiche favor. usted defensas. Es que pero, hagamos jerarquía, contundencia, están mirando gol. Alvaro, big game for you Tuesday night. Spain take on Portugal for a deeply desired place in the Nations League final four. Portugal are two points clear at the top of the group and just need a draw Tuesday night. And this because Spain lost 2-1 against Switzerland. Their first home defeat in four years. Only their second in a competitive home international for almost 20 years. How significant is that? How worried is everybody in Spain after defeat to Switzerland? It is significant, uh, I believe. And Luis Enrique, I don't think he's worried, but he was admitting that uh, the game meant like three or four steps backwards. Uh, this is the worst first half that Spain has played in a very long time. Definitely the worst first half that they, play, they have played under Luis Enrique. So I think that there are reasons to worry. Um, but also I think that the manager should look at himself in the mirror a little bit, really, because I think that Luis Enrique is making prevail the tactical diligence over the player's competence. Let me explain this very quickly. Uh, some of his decisions are debilitating the side when it comes to which players he's picking. Because, for example, Fabian Aspas, Thiago Alcantara. Those are players who clearly, even Ansu Fati, despite him not being able to play 90 minutes, those are players that if you have them on the bench or on the pitch, at some point they can turn up and uh, kill the game because they are very good. And Luis Enrique doesn't pick some of them because they are not tactically diligent enough for what he's requiring. And I think that, yes, it makes sense to me that the manager is asking the players to be very diligent and very obedient tactically. But at the same time, sometimes you have to look away a little bit and that 10% that Thiago Alcantara won't give you tactically, but Coque will, will be compensated because Thiago has uh, some virtuosity that Coque doesn't. And Luis Enrique doesn't consider these things. And this is going at the expense of the Spanish national side. And this is the thing that worries me a little bit. Other concerns might include weakness on set pieces, which Switzerland's manager Murat Yakin said they targeted specifically in this game and got two goals from uh, from uh, set pieces. Uh, also, the the ongoing question mark over the centre forward. Yes, well, uh, the, when it comes to the set pieces, I think that Spain hasn't been catastrophic lately with the set pieces. It just happened that they could be a one-off, what happened against Switzerland. Mm, I'm not sure if Pau Torres and Eric Garcia are going to be playing uh, together in the World Cup, because I think that Laporte, if he's fit, he's going to play for sure. And maybe Inigo Martinez uh, from Athletic Club Bilbao has a chance as well. But yeah, I think that I can link what you're saying with the Spanish number nine, Spanish striker, and the Spanish defenders. Spain has a really good midfield line with uh, Pedri, Coque, Gabi, and Busquets, and Rodri. They will rotate, but the five of them are tremendously competent. We know who the goalkeeper is. However, we don't know who the centre-backs are going to be for the World Cup, let alone the full-backs, because Gaia, Alba, Marcos Llorente, Carvajal, or Azpilicueta can have a chance. And up front, Luis Enrique rotates massively as well. And uh, the striker, I think that is going to be Álvaro Morata. He's not having a great season, but... Uh, you know, it's still one of Luis Enrique's favorites and so far he's probably the best Spanish number nine altogether with Gerard Moreno, but Gerard Moreno has endless physical issues. So, yeah, this uh, creates a side that is uh, very vulnerable because in their own box they concede and in the opponent's box they don't make the difference. Uh, and it creates a very, very strange uh, team that you can extract many strange narratives from. For example... Spain is the total opposite of a flat track bully. The total opposite. I mean, when they play against uh, a lesser side, their flows flourish very quickly. But when they play against a strong side, then their virtues flourish very quickly. Uh, I still remember Bonucci saying after the Euro semi-final that uh, they had never encountered a side that had made them suffer as much as Spain. Mm. But then, you know, to be at the top games against the top opposition, you really have to win the easy games or the winnable games. So this is the problem with the Spanish side right now. Uh, they are like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. 
they've got great days. They've got some days in which they should win and they can't because they've got a possession-based football that is not very prolific. So yeah, there is still some work to do for Luis Enrique. But in my opinion, uh, he has to put players on the pitch that have some scoring menace. And I think that Ansu Fati, Gerard Moreno, Morata, these three, at least two of them should be on the pitch. Or even Oyarzabal if he's back from injury, because at least we know that he can, they can score like 20 goals per season. They have done it in the past. But the rest of the guys who play up front, they haven't done it. And, uh, you know, Spain will be more strong if they put players who actually can score a goal, can sniff a goal here and there. All right, so Portugal Tuesday night... What do you make of them? They, they, they've been looking good, although you drew 1-1 with them back in June. Yeah, well, I, I think that the Portuguese side has uh, all the firepower that Spain misses, Portugal has it. Even the other day, Diogo Dalot scored the brace, which is probably an oddity. But still, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo is not um, enjoying a good time, but Bruno Fernandes, he's one of the best scoring midfielders in the world. He scored the goal the other day. Then they've got Rafael Leao, who is... Uh, you know, topping the charts in Italy as well. So they've got a lot of firepower and the central defense is really good as well. So basically it's a team that has plenty of strong points in these areas that Spain doesn't have strong players. So they are opposing teams, as you can see. But I still believe that Spain normally plays very well against the strong sides like mm. uh, Germany, like England, uh, and hopefully against Portugal too. You've got Germany in your World Cup group, of course. What a, what a group that looks uh, Germany, Japan, and Costa Rica, the winners of which will face the second-place team in the group that's Belgium, Canada, Morocco, and Croatia. Less strong, that looks. Although, I suppose you don't want to be facing Croatia or, or, or Belgium. So, overall, then, the mood in Spain is kind of apprehensive? I think that the, there is not a lot of... Uh optimism about the Spanish national side. We are aware that we can beat anybody, but anyone can beat us as well, which mm. is mm, something that uh, not every national side can say. I think that when you know strong sides play against the lesser sides, normally win. Spain suffers to win those winnable games. Um, and then, of course, since Luis Enrique doesn't cap many Real Madrid players, uh, with the exception of Asensio Carvajal, uh, you know, some Madrid press is very eager to just jump at Luis Enrique's neck and bite it anytime uh, Spain doesn't get a good result. So sometimes the atmosphere can get a little bit toxic, a little bit toxic, not very, but the good thing is that Luis Enrique has created the team. I mean, inside the Spanish national camp, the players are real devotees of Luis Enrique, real devotees of him. I mean, the team, the group is excellent. And I think that this uh, strong mentality that they've got collectively uh, can help them navigate even when the critics from the press are very fierce. Okay. Well, if they get a win on Tuesday night against Portugal, of course, that will set things up nicely, no doubt, and boost the mood still further ahead of the World Cup. I know you want to talk, Alvaro, about uh, Argentina and Brazil. It'll be interesting to hear everyone's thoughts about them. But next up, let's touch on the one European side who barely put a foot wrong in the Nations League, and that's the Netherlands. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Van Dijk richting de eerste paal. That is the goal! 
The captain doet het. The one big European side that are flying right now are the Dutchmen, the Netherlands. And Mikael Jongsma joins us now. Hello, Mikael. Hi, James. How are you? I'm very well, very well. Oh, we've been hearing kind of tales of woe and concern from around Europe, but not so much in the Netherlands. Your latest result, that that 1-0 defeat of Belgium, which has qualified you for the Nations League finals, and it's taken Van Gaal's record since his reappointment to 11 wins and four draws. First off, beating Belgium sounds impressive. Was it? No, it wasn't. It was a quite, quite a flat performance. A uh, few few players were out through injury, and even though Frankie Dion and Memphis Depay are not integral in the Barcelona side of Xabi at the moment, they are very much so in uh, Louis van Gaal's team, um, and the team kind of lacked a bit of dynamic, a bit of intent. But uh, it was a good test for for the rest of the players, a good showcase to see what they could do. Uh, Louis van Gaal before the match said, like when there's no Frankie Dion, we're not going to try and replicate him with with a, with a surrogate, basically. We'll just try and change our style a bit. Um, I don't think he was too happy with, with what was on show, but like uh, the, the old adage goes, well, if you win these kind of matches, then, well, <laughs> you, you might be, become champion. So uh, I think mm. everyone was quite, quite satisfied with uh, the result. Right. Uh, one Van Hal touch was to to move uh, Malassia to to centre back to stop Kevin De Bruyne, which worked pretty well. Yeah, definitely, and it, it is quite interesting because um, you you just mentioned his unbeaten run. Well, when you uh, exclude penalties, uh, it, it's actually a, an unbeaten run since the two thousand one World Cup qualifier against Ireland because he hasn't lost a game with the Dutch since, which is incredible, really. Um, and uh, in 2014, he, he really stood out with some tactical innovation. Um, and I think he's trying to, <laughs> to, do that, to do that kind of thing again. And mm. uh, it does make kind of sense because Daily Blind has always been a bit of a, um, a concern defensively as a left wing back, but his, his skill on the ball as a passer um, and, and just his positioning has been undisputed. Uh, and Van Gaal is trying to counter that with, with yeah, creating a, a wide centre-back. So it's an inverted wing-back and a wide centre-back, just combining uh, the Guardiola ways with the, the, with the wilder ways at Sheffield United, I suppose. But mm. yeah, it's, it, it is quite cool to see him try that kind of thing. And he has been in a, innovative in other ways. He claims himself as well. With the goalie situation, he's, he's, he's brought in a few goalkeepers to, to test their, their skills on, on penalties. Um, so yeah, Van Gaal, he, he might be, he might be uh, on the old side for a coach, but he's definitely still trying to, to do new things. Interesting. Malaysia and Kevin De Bruyne could be facing each other this coming weekend in the Manchester derby, which would be interesting. I think Ten Hag was actually at the win over Belgium, observing. So, hmm. You mentioned goalkeepers. So Renko Pazvir made his Netherlands debut last Thursday at the age of 38. Uh, which is pretty remarkable. In, in terms of the squad, all in all, Van Gaal saying that it's a better squad that he has now than the group uh, that he took to the 2014 World Cup semi-finals. W- would you agree? It's a bit of a bold statement given the attacking quality that that side had with Iron Robin, Robin van Persie being there, uh, Wesley Sneijder and Dirk Huyt, perhaps slightly on the wane, but still. Uh, but when you look at the, the overall setup of this team, there is something to say for it, like in terms of uh, defenders, it's it's most definitely a more accomplished side. You have uh, players like Matthijs de Ligt and Stefan de Vrij um, not starting um, for the Dutch at the moment because Nathan Ake and uh, Jurian Timber of Ajax are doing really well. Virgil van Dijk is the undisputed uh, leader of that team. Um, and there are there are yeah some some other positions as well where you feel like they have a bit more a bit more options than they did back then. So yeah, I think this is. Well, there there's a case to be made for it, um, uh, most definitely. And uh, yeah, it's, it seems like it's a bit more mature. He feels like the players are a bit more, um, yeah, a bit bit more aware of what what they need to be be doing. So I think he's, uh, yeah, he, he might very well be right. I think the World Cup 2014 team felt uh, as a bit of a fluke, because they've really really uh, disappointed at the Euro 2012 uh, competition and then failed to qualify for the two subsequent uh, competitions as well. So, yeah, I mean, it, it feels a bit more solid at the moment. Okay. It's a, it's a relatively friendly-looking group that you have at the World Cup. Uh, Qatar, 
Ecuador and Senegal, the the opponents. And if you win that, you face the runner-up of England's group, which is England, Iran, USA, and Wales. So this seems like there's a lot of positives right now around Netherlands. Is there anything that you would you would regard or that that is currently being worried about in in Netherlands? Are there any kind of issues though about the team? Well, you mentioned the goalkeeper situation, and that one is a bit funny. Remco Posfer has been really good over the last few years, I would say, even before he joined Ajax. But if you're debuting a 38-year-old goalkeeper, then there's a, quite a clear lack of talent. Um, and the fact that the other goalkeepers that are currently um, being seen as, as potential um, yeah, World Cup uh, goers as well, you've got Jasper Sillison, who joined uh, his, his boyhood club NSA. Uh, uh, from uh, from Valencia, you've got Andres Noppert, who was basically an unknown at the start of the season, um, who did, did some really impressive things in the Eredivisie, but is again really unproven. Uh, being considered to 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 join um, Pasfeer for for the World Cup, and yeah, that the goalkeeper situation is a bit bit worrying. I think in general, um, uh, yeah, the, the the how key Frankie De Jong is how key Memphis Depay is, is a bit worrying as well. So it's quite thin in a few positions. But overall, like this team definitely has the makeup to be, be really sturdy, really strong defensively. Um, and um, they will be tough to beat. I think that's the one thing that you, that you can say about this side. I'm not sure if they're going to be that pleasing to watch, but you feel like there's always the danger of, of getting a goal for them. Uh, on the other hand, they do have the quality to, to shut out teams. Um, so, yeah. I don't think that in the Netherlands ever, anyone sees them as a favorite for the World Cup because it's just not convincing enough. Uh, but there is this boost of confidence from the recent run of results and the fact that Louis van Gaal looks, looks well, actually aware of what he's doing. And when you compare it to the last tournament when Frank de Boer was in charge of the side, the, the sentiment was just completely the reverse. People felt like, oh, this is a good team, but the manager is just not up, up to standard. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, I think... I think there's a there's a yeah there's a growing confidence in, in, in the Netherlands that this could actually be a side that goes far again. Mikael Jongsma. Mm. All right, Alvaro, you raised the question of all these Euro sides with their flaws and their issues, but what about the Latin American giants? Argentina and Brazil both were in action over this weekend. They both had three no wins in friendlies. I think they're both playing again tonight. They are. Argentina have Jamaica Tuesday night and Brazil take on Tunisia. But those 3-0... Okay, so Argentina beat Honduras 3-0 and woof, what a goal from Messi. Whereas Brazil were taking on Ghana in La Havre and they were pretty electric as well. Jules, you watched watched this one. Yeah, it was it was amazing for the first half, uh, I have to say. They were 3-0 up at the break but they could easily have been 6 or 7-0 up. That's how good they were, I think. Mm. Ghana and they, Otoado, the, the head coach, played into Brazil's hands by fielding a super attacking Ghanaian team, which didn't make any sense. They lost Thomas Partey just before the game, so he could not play. But still, they only had one defensive midfielder that was not really one, to be honest. So they were just completely exposed and overrun, overplayed everywhere, which they would have been even if they put a more defensive team. But I think, mm. I think that also helped Brazil. However... The first 45 minutes from Brazil was were just literally outstanding. It was that good. Um, they played only Casemiro as a proper defensive midfielder and then Paqueta, Neymar, Richarlison, Rafinha and Vinicius. And it was, it was really, really incredible football. Everything they created, you could not get the ball off them. The, just the movement was incredible, the intensity. Even, even once they lost the ball, which was not very often, but how quickly they recovered it. It was great. The second half didn't make any, there was no point because there were mm. loads of changes and they, they stopped playing. But the first 45 minutes was really, really great. I don't think they would play all of those attacking players together in, in certain games at the World Cup because then Casimiro can't do it all the defensive work on his own. And also they didn't have a proper right back. All I mean, they had centre-backs and right-backs and, and left-backs. But it was very impressive, I have to say. Mm. They really miss the Arsenal players. In other words. <laughs> well, this is where you realise, you know, you could have been surprised that Gabriel Jesus especially hmm. wasn't there. But then when you saw the, the performance that Richarlison had, for example, and the two goals he scored, I mean, two of the three goals were on set pieces, by the way. So if they can add set pieces threats, 
to already what they do with the ball in you know in normal play, then it's even more scary. But but I think Gabriel Jesus and and Martinelli. I, I don't think Gabriel Margalas can has a chance anyway. But the mm. other two. They will have to be very, very good between now and when Chichi announces his squad to make the squad, even if even if it's a 26-man squad. And Neymar running the show, although, as you say, our opponents might set up a little bit uh, yeah, differently in definitely. their World Cup a group, which is uh, against Serbia, uh, Switzerland and Cameroon. Woof. I think that uh, Martinelli will find it very difficult to, to play for Brazil because Neymar and Vinicius can play there. And mm. I think that it makes sense that Martinelli doesn't get called by Chichi. Gabriel Jesus, that is more debatable because I believe that he's a better player than Mateus Cunha. Uh, but Mateus Cunha offers a profile that uh, Gabriel doesn't because Mateus Cunha is physical and Tite uh, during the qualifiers has tried uh, to find the number nine. Uh, he tried first with um, Gabigol, a player that uh, plays uh, over there in Brazil. Mm. And uh, in this uh, list, he called Pedro as well. By the way, Brazilian football, Brazilian club football is having a very good time. In the Copa Libertadores, they had five sides uh, in the quarterfinals. And uh, th there is no surprise uh, that the three of the players in the list of Tite uh, were coming from Brazilian clubs. But anyway, I think that this Brazilian side is wild when it comes to um, the individual talent and the speed. I mean, to the point that uh, the fullbacks don't even overlap anymore. They pass the ball to Rafinha, Vinicius, Neymar... Anthony, even Richarlison, who can play there. And these players, they have full freedom to make the difference on the wings. And this Brazilian side brings all the talent from there, from the wings especially, because the midfielders, yes, they are the best ones are holding midfielders, with the exception of Lucas Paqueta, maybe. But, you know, the wilderness they've got on the, on the wings is incredible, really. And the assurances um, that the defense gives you as well uh, make Brazil play with a lot of uh, confidence. Uh, they have barely lost the game in the last four years. Uh, they won the Copa America 2019 easily. Mm -hmm. And in the Copa America 2021, they were as good as Argentina, even in the final. But Argentina won it uh, because they, they managed to, to defend their lead. But right. this version side is very, is very strong. Hmm. Well, I mean, Argentina, you talk about not, not barely lost a game. Argentina haven't lost a game for, what, 30, 34 matches now, including the Copa America final. They looked uh, pretty good against Honduras. There's a kind of burgeoning Messi's World Cup narrative to Qatar, especially after the goal he scored against Honduras. What, what do you think? Messi is very well surrounded by teammates this time. And uh, in World Cup 2014, for example, it was the Messi show, and Argentina in midfield didn't have a lot of talent. Right now, Argentina in midfield, they've got plenty of players who can link up with Messi. Papu, Rodrigo de Paul, Paredes, Lo Celso, and Lionel Messi doesn't feel that anxiety to do whatever, everything on his own. This time his teammates can do a lot. Passing the ball, one-twos, uh, find up front Lautaro, Julian, Álvarez. I think that this Argentina side is very good. And at the defense, they have found Cuti Romero and Lisandro Martinez. And this uh, center-back pair is working very well. I was very surprised. I was at Wembley watching them in the finalissima against Italy. Mm. And... Uh, the mood among uh, the Argentinian fan base is that something good can happen. And even among the players, when they won the Copa America in 2021, uh, were following the players on Instagram, like the week after they won, and all of them, they were wearing still the Argentina kit in their holidays. The Argentina players, the Argentina's pants. I mean, because I think that they are very committed to the team, and they were so happy to having won a title for the first time in 28, 30 years. And I think that they blew off a lot of pressure from themselves winning the Copa America. So it's a very good moment for Argentina, really. All right. Alvaro, have you got a sneaky feeling that this is Argentina's World Cup? If, when people say to you, Alvaro, you know football. Who's going to win the World Cup? What do you say? <sighs> I think that Brazil or France, really, but Argentina really? will be literally behind them. Okay, because people yeah. do ask that question. Then you work in football. Who's going to win the World Cup? Rafa, what do you say to them? Well, I gave you my answer, James, didn't I? France. Mm -hmm. A lot of France love here, Jules. Mm. You're going to be yeah. really superstitious and say somebody else. No, I'm going to say Germany and Spain, of course, to jinx those two. F <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Ah, come on. Uh, <laughs> No one has retained the World Cup since Brazil in 62, so it right. doesn't happen. It's not going to happen with France. So France are not going to win it. Uh, okay. And this is me being really mm. objective and, and, and realistic. Mm. Fake um, modesty. No, 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 no. I mean, there's a reason why no <laughs> one... There, there's been better teams than France, as in, you know, in a better form, who, mm. who went to World Cup to try to retain it and didn't do it. Mm. So I don't think, I don't think we will really... 
Um, but I think I think it would be either Brazil or Argentina. And really? I don't think there's much. Yeah. I don't no think European much side. No. Okay. And where will England get? How far will England get? <laughs> They've got a very easy group. And if they come out from the group with nine points, I mean, they, they will have some good confidence levels. No? I want to think that. I mean, if, if Gareth Southgate continues with his, the greatest talent that he has as a manager, which is to find easy draws, then they can go, they can go far. Because they're, Harry Maguire notwithstanding, they're, they're awkward to play against. But I think eventually they come, come up against a team that's just a little bit better. Mm. Have, you, have we seen that happen before? I think we, I think we might. I think we have. Mm. All right. Well, 50, what was it, 52 days? 54 days? Not many days until the World Cup. Loads of club football between now and then. Got Champions League coming up next week. Not this one. And some big games this weekend. We'll be reviewing all of those in the club football in next Tuesday's Totally Football Show. For now, though, that's where we'll park this one. Many thanks to Rafa, Jules, Alvaro. Uh, love to uh, the absent James Horncastle and our gratitude to Mikhail Youngsman and you, listener, and producer Charlie, of course. Catch up with you next week. We're here on Thursday if you want to know what happens between Spain and Portugal, but don't watch. We'll tell you on Thursday. And for now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on The Athletic app and discover bonus content by following The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.